0: Well, hello there. I'm Nurse Mo, and this is the Straight A Nursing Podcast, where I teach nursing concepts and share tips on how to thrive in nursing school and, of course, also at the bedside. Today, we're going to be talking about a mental health nursing topic, postpartum depression. Now, before we dive into this very important topic, let's take a quick minute for a listener shout out, and this one goes out to Dawn, who says this. I'm so happy to share that I passed my last exam of my nursing program yesterday, and I'm looking forward to pinning and continuing to prep and sit for the NCLEX. Thank you so much, Nurse Mo, for all the tools you have created, especially your podcast and Surge solution to help us nursing students succeed. I don't think I could have done it without you. Dawn, I'm so, so proud of you. I remember that feeling when I hit submit on that final exam. Oh my gosh, it felt so, so good. And you know what's going to feel even better? Getting notification that you passed your NCLEX, which I 100% know you're going to do. So thank you again for taking the time to submit that review of the podcast and MedSearch Solution. So today we're talking about postpartum depression and this has been called the thief that steals motherhood and it is defined as a temporary episode of major depression associated with childbirth. And it is one of the most common childbirth-related conditions affecting 13 to 19% of childbearing women. That is a lot. Now, while PPD or postpartum depression has been called the baby blues, describing it as such really negates the serious impact this significant depressive disorder can have on both the mother and the child. While the pathogenesis of postpartum depression is actually not fully understood, the research suggests that psychological and social stressors, hormones, and genetics play a role in its development. So first, let's talk about some of the complications of postpartum depression, and they are numerous for both the mother and the infant. Postpartum depression has been associated with long-term maternal depression, increased risk of suicide, increased risk for substance abuse, decreased milk production, inability to breastfeed decreased quality of infant care and disruptions in maternal-infant bonding. And then complications for the child include increased risk for behavioral or emotional issues, delays in language development, learning delays, and increased crying, which, of course, can cause additional stress in the mother. A study conducted in 2010 found that 41% of mothers with postpartum depression thought about harming their infant. And other studies showed that basic things like well-child visits and vaccinations are also negatively impacted. Child safety is affected as well, with research showing decreased adherence to safety practices such as using car seats, lowering the water heater temperature, covering electrical outlets and utilizing safety latches on cabinets. Overall, mothers with PPD tend to display more irritability and decreased engagement and warmth toward their infants, which of course affects both of them greatly. So what are the contributing factors for postpartum depression? Now, while the cause is not, again, very well understood, some contributing factors have been identified, and these include, first of all, hormones. Drastic decreases in estrogen and progesterone, as well as thyroid hormone, can all contribute to feelings of depression and fatigue. And then vitamin B6 may also be a contributing factor. Deficiencies in this key vitamin can contribute to postpartum depression. Now, vitamin B6 is converted into tryptophan and then serotonin, which is, of course, associated with mood. And then we have disrupted sleep cycles. Sleep deprivation leads to emotional and physical exhaustion. It has been linked to suicidal ideation in women with postpartum depression, and it is a very, very big stressor. And then there are the expectations of motherhood. Societal expectations of what it means to be a good mother can lead to the individual sacrificing their own self-care, their own sleep, their own favorite activities, so they can devote 100% of their effort and attention to the newborn. You combine this with the increased demands that come with parenting, and the individual is understandably at risk for feelings of overwhelm, exhaustion, and depression. So who is most at risk for postpartum depression? So individuals most at risk include those with a prior history of depression or other mental health conditions, such as anxiety or bipolar disorder. Additionally, individuals with weak support systems, financial stress, or who are experiencing stressful life events such as losing a job or giving birth to multiples are at higher risk for postpartum depression. A high risk pregnancy with complications such as an emergency C-section has also been associated with postpartum depression. Also having an infant with special needs or an infant who was preterm or who is hospitalized can increase the risk for postpartum depression or exacerbate the depression. It's also more prevalent in lower socioeconomic populations, which may be due to a lack of resources and less access to health care and childcare. Now let's also talk very briefly about three related conditions, which are postpartum anxiety, postpartum PTSD, and postpartum psychosis. So postpartum anxiety is closely related to postpartum depression and that it is thought to be associated with those same causative factors, and many who have PPD also have an anxiety component with that. The research shows that women with more severe symptoms of depression tend to be the ones who also have anxiety symptoms, though postpartum anxiety can, of course, occur on its own, and it affects between 11 and 21% of postpartum women. Many women with postpartum anxiety have symptoms that align with obsessive compulsive disorder. These individuals have intrusive thoughts focused on their infant safety and may involve thoughts of infant harm, though note that these women have these worries and the fears about harming their child, but they are not actual plans to follow through and actually harm the child. So that's postpartum anxiety. And then postpartum PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder is a condition that can affect up to 6% of mothers and is usually triggered by real or perceived trauma associated with childbirth. The affected individual feels that her life or the life of her infant is at risk during labor or in the period after childbirth. And symptoms include nightmares, flashbacks, difficulty sleeping, irritability, anxiety, and intrusive thoughts of the trauma experience. And then postpartum psychosis is a severe, severe form of mental illness that is thought to be associated with those same factors as postpartum depression. The condition has a sudden onset And on average, occurs within two weeks of giving birth, though, of course, this can vary from person to person. It affects between 0.09 and 2.6 of every 1,000 births and is thankfully not that common, but it is a serious disorder that involves extreme confusion, delusion, disorganized thought processes, and hallucinations. Postpartum psychosis is a life threatening emergency for both the parent and the infant, and it requires immediate intervention. It's also interesting to note that dads can experience postpartum depression as well. Those at risk include fathers experiencing financial instability, those with a history of depression, those with a partner with postpartum depression, and fathers of a younger age. So now that you understand the basics of postpartum depression, it's time to learn more about the care of these individuals, and we'll use the straight A nursing latte method to do that. So the first letter is the letter L, and that stands for look. How does the patient look? What are the signs and symptoms? So postpartum depression is characterized by irritability, sadness, changes in appetite, and sleep disturbances. Now, it's important not to mistake postpartum depression for the baby blues, which typically last up to two weeks and involve crying spells, mood swings, difficulty sleeping, and anxiety. Postpartum depression is actually much more intense and lasts much longer than the simple baby blues. Specific signs and symptoms of postpartum depression include things like having depression that interferes with childcare and self-care, having severe mood swings and frequent crying, difficulty concentrating, even withdrawing from social events. The individual may have anxiety. They could not be eating enough or maybe eating too much. They could have difficulties bonding with the infant and sleep disturbances. They could also have feelings of shame, guilt, or hopelessness and even a loss of interest or pleasure in previously enjoyed activities. And sadly, some individuals experience thoughts of harming themselves or harming their child. Now, the symptoms of postpartum depression can occur soon after delivery or even up to a year later. In general, most of the time it tends to occur within the first three months after delivery. Now, the next letter in the latte method is an A, and that is for assess. How are we going to assess this individual? So the priority assessment for a patient with postpartum depression is to assess for suicidal and homicidal ideation. If the patient states they are having these thoughts, direct questions should be asked to clarify the patient's intent, desire plans and whether or not they have any lethal means available. Any patient experiencing suicidal or homicidal ideation needs immediate emergency interventions and very, very close monitoring. Another key assessment is screening, and screening for postpartum depression is commonly conducted utilizing a standardized tool called the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale, or the EDPS. This is a self-reporting questionnaire that consists of 10 statements and four possible response options. An EDPS score greater than 13 signifies the individual is at risk for postpartum depression. In general, postpartum depression is diagnosed when the individual has at least five depression symptoms, which are present for at least two weeks following childbirth. Now, unfortunately, it is estimated that up to 50% of individuals with postpartum depression are not diagnosed because they're either uncomfortable discussing their symptoms when other family members are present or they're not screened routinely. In fact, a study conducted in 2023, so very recently, revealed that one in eight women were not asked about depression symptoms at postpartum visits. So all postpartum individuals should be privately screened at every postnatal visit using standardized tools such as the EDPS. So the next letter in the latte method is a T, and that stands for tests. So what tests might be conducted for a patient with postpartum depression? So diagnosis of postpartum depression is achieved through evaluation of the patient's symptoms, though a few diagnostic tests may be ordered to identify potential underlying causes or conditions that could mimic the symptoms of depression. So the patient may get blood or urine tests to rule out other medical conditions like hepatic encephalopathy, uremia, hypercalcemia, hypothyroidism, hyperthyroidism, hypo or hypernatremia, hypo or hyperglycemia, and illicit substance abuse. And then brain imaging may be conducted to look for changes in brain structure in cases of postpartum psychosis. The next letter is also a T and that stands for treatments. So treatment for postpartum depression can include antidepressants and or psychotherapy. The recommended therapeutic approaches are cognitive behavioral therapy and interpersonal psychotherapy. In therapy sessions, patients work to disrupt thought patterns, increase positive activities in their lives, and learn skills to address interpersonal difficulties. Pharmacologic treatment may include the IV antidepressant medication Brexonolone, which is the first FDA-approved medication specifically for postpartum depression. It works by modulating the GABA-A receptor and restoring GABA to third trimester levels. Serious side effects can occur with this medication and include sudden loss of consciousness, excessive sedation, and increased risk for suicide. For this reason, patients must have continuous pulse oximetry monitoring and be evaluated for excessive sedation and loss of consciousness at least every two hours during the 60-hour infusion. Because it is a high-risk medication that requires hospitalization, it is generally used in patients with a history of severe postpartum depression or in those who have not been responsive to other medications or psychotherapy in the past. Other antidepressants, which are more commonly used, include SSRIs, such as citalopram, escitalopram, fluoxetine, and sertraline. Note that while the risks associated with breastfeeding while taking an SSRI are considered to be relatively low, these risks must be balanced with the overall benefit to the mother. And then individuals who also experience anxiety may be prescribed anti-anxiety medication such as lorazepam for short-term use. And then next we have E and that stands for education. How are we going to educate our patient about postpartum depression? So the key to managing Postpartum depression is talking about postpartum depression. Encourage new and expectant mothers to share symptoms with their healthcare provider and talk with them about the risks to themselves and their baby that come with avoiding treatment. It's also really important that new mothers understand the vital importance of attending all follow-up appointments and that more frequent visits may be warranted for those with a history of mental health issues. We want to keep a closer eye on these patients. Now, for patients taking antidepressants, ensure they understand how and when to take their medication, and that SSRIs can be passed through to breast milk. If the mother has questions about the risks and benefits of taking an antidepressant, encourage them to speak to their prescribing physician. And then we have some lifestyle modifications that can help with symptoms of postpartum depression. And these include incorporating physical activity into their routine, such as simply taking a walk with their infant. Also eating a healthy diet that provides excellent nutrition is another lifestyle modification that can be helpful. They should avoid using alcohol as a coping mechanism. A lot of times people use alcohol to cope with stress. We definitely don't want them doing that. And encourage the mother to let go of being perfect and realize that self-care and infant care are far more important than an Instagram-worthy spotless house or expertly folded laundry. You also want to teach your patient to reach out to loved ones and ask for help when it's needed. Examples of things to ask for help with are meal preparation and babysitting. It's also really important that you teach them to seek assistance with parenting skills such as learning how to soothe a fussy baby, or learning how to improve baby's sleep habits. These can be very foundational, essential skills that can make a huge difference in the long term. You also want to encourage your patient to make time for doing enjoyable activities away from the house if they can get away, and away from the baby if that's at all possible. They need time for themselves. Teach that something like cuddling the infant stimulates the release of oxytocin, which can have a calming effect and decrease maternal anxiety. You also want to encourage them to share nocturnal care responsibilities with a partner or another caregiver if that is an option so that they can try to get at least 4 hours of uninterrupted sleep at a time at night. Now, I know this is probably the biggest challenge for parents is getting uninterrupted sleep, but if they can arrange their schedule where one caregiver is on duty for 4 hours and the other one gets a block of uninterrupted sleep, that can go a long way to decreasing the stress of sleep disturbances. You should teach them that they should avoid using caffeine as a way to manage their daytime sleepiness as this can exacerbate sleep disruption at night. Also teaching that when possible, gradually weaning breastfeeding can minimize sudden drops in hormone levels. And when possible, that exclusive breastfeeding has been shown to decrease depressive symptoms up to three months in that postpartum period. So there you have it, your brief overview to postpartum depression, a subject that definitely doesn't get talked about enough. And I really hope they're teaching it to you in your nursing program. And if you're working with new or expectant mothers, that you now have some background so you can have these important conversations with your patients. So I will see you back here next week, where we will be talking about a pathophysiology concept, looking at how CHF causes anemia. So if you've ever wondered, how does that happen? I'm going to answer that question for you next week. See you then. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez,